Thank you for listening to the Calvary Church Podcast. If this ministry has been a blessing to you, would you let us know? Send an email to mystory@toledocalvary.org. We would love to hear what God is doing in your life today. You ever, you ever heard the phrase Christmas in July? Have you ever heard that? You know what I'm talking about? We're going to have a little Christmas in July here today for a few minutes, okay? So, so probably outside of the, the biblical story of Christmas, the most famous Christmas story is probably Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. You're familiar with it? Remember the story? It's about it's, uh, the main character is this guy who has to learn some really painful lessons about his own life and about his own self, and he gets visited by the, the ghost of Christmas past, present, and future, and throughout the whole story kind of focuses on this, this poor guy, Bob Cratchit, and then he has this little son whose name is Tiny Tim. Okay, your literature teachers are so proud right now. It's awesome. And, and the, the beautiful part of the story is that through the whole thing, the main character, Ebenezer, he has his heart changed. Because as you read the story, he's, he's miserly, he's mean, he's unkind, he's anything but generous. And then you get to the end of the story, and there's been a transformation that's happened in his heart, and he becomes this generous person. Unfortunately for Eb, though, here's how it works. His last name is continually known as a descriptor for someone who is unkind or who is not generous. And if it's a situation where you need someone to be giving and understanding and, and, and generous as a person, you will say to them, do not be a Scrooge. It comes right to your mind, doesn't it? His last name is synonymous with that. There's one point to this sermon today. Are you ready for it? Uh, there's actually three points, but you'll see what I mean here in a moment. There's, there's one motive. Don't be a Scrooge. We're, we're in this series of messages that we're calling Connect, Grow, Serve because it lines right up with our idea of a vision of our church. The vision of Calvary Church is life change. We believe that when someone has a personal encounter with Jesus Christ, then their lives are changed for eternity. And in fact, that's, that's the focus of what we do. It's the filter. If there's things that we do, we want to make sure that lives are changed because if lives aren't changed, then it's not worth doing. And over the years, we've looked and said, how do we know when people's lives have been transformed through relationship with Christ? And one of the things that you see is that life change happens when we connect, grow, and serve together. And we're in the book of Acts. We're kind of taking a long walk through the book of Acts, and we've worked our way to the end of chapter two. And in fact, in this series that we're calling Connect, Grow, and Serve, we're looking at the last seven verses of Acts chapter two. And as we're on this journey, we're gonna kind of unpack these ideas of what it means to connect and grow and serve. And we'll get to that starting next week. But before we get there, there's one other component of this passage, this, these seven verses at the end of Acts two, where Luke kind of pauses from telling us stories and he just gives us this big summary passage that's very deliberate. He crafts it very purposefully. And there's one other component that we need to see. Watch this. Acts chapter 2, verses 44 and 45. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And when I got to those verses, the only thing that really made sense to me was to refer to this using the word generosity. Generosity is a key component of what happened in this story. It's a key component of what happened in the early church. And I believe that as we look at this, you're going to see how significant it is in our lives as well. So we're going to talk about generosity today. And my hope is that you won't be a Scrooge. I want to give to you three truths about generous people. As we look at this passage in Acts chapter 2, I want you to see three truths about generous people. Here's the first one. Number one, generous people are wise people. Generous people are wise people. Have you ever known someone who just made generosity look easy? Do you know anybody like that? 
But I've got people in my life who they just have the ability to be very generous. Sometimes it's because they have a unique amount of resource. They're, they're able to give to others in a unique way. Maybe they've been blessed by God with some financial ability or he's entrusted some special resource to them. And then as a result, they bring blessing to God's people and God's kingdom. I've got some friends like that. They, they just, they know how it is that, that God blesses them. Then they're able to bless others. They make an eternal kingdom difference in that. But we make a mistake when we equate generous people with wealthy people. Because I know a lot of generous people who are generous not because of the resource that they have, but because of the selflessness that they have in being able to give, not necessarily because they have this great abundance, but because they've been given this, this gift of generosity. It's a generous spirit from God. And, and when you exercise that kind of generosity, a generous spirit, Scripture tells us it's a good thing that we're wise when we're generous. Look at what the Proverbs say. Proverbs 11, verse 25. A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. When you're willing to be generous towards other people, it literally brings God's refreshment, God's blessing into your life. So that's a verse of blessing. Watch this one, verse 27 of Proverbs 28. Those who give to the poor will lack nothing, but those who close their eyes to them receive many curses. You see the contrast here in generosity between blessing and curse? One more, Proverbs 22, verse 9. The generous will themselves be blessed, for they share their food with the poor. When you're willing to be generous towards others, it brings blessing back to your life. And although the Proverbs echo this idea of generosity over and over again, I think it's a concept that runs central to all of Scripture. Even, even just go to probably the most famous, most well-known biblical passage, John 3.16. What does it say? For God so loved the world that he... It's a verse about generosity, that the very heart of who God is, is God is a giver, and he wants us to be givers as well. So, so we've established this idea that to be generous is wise. What I want to do is show you this principle of generosity in our passage of Scripture, Acts chapter 2, where we're at. We're, we're studying verses 41 to 47. Before we get there, I, I want to show you this, but I'm going to ask you to kind of help me out for a few moments. We're, we're going to kind of take a deep little theological dive in, into a concept here that's going to require us to kind of track together, maybe put our little thinking caps on for a few moments. Can you, can you help me out here? H how many of you hated your English literature class? Anybody? Okay, whatever hate you have towards that teacher, do not project it onto me. Is that all right? Okay, because I'm not, I'm not a very good English teacher. But I want to show you something that, that you'll still see sometimes in modern literature. You'll see it a lot in ancient literature, including both the Old and New Testament. That, that is this really cool concept that I want to show to you that I think will help us as we look at this passage in Acts chapter 2. Sometimes they'll use this structure in literature that looks like this. Just very simply, they'll refer to it as kind of like A, B, B, A. And it has this idea that as you repeat something or as you, as you mirror something, it helps you to understand it better and even can give some focus to, to what's really important in it. So let's, let's just start with something. Have you ever heard the saying, winners never quit, but quitters never win? Have you ever heard that? Anybody? I really need you to help because I'm not a good English teacher. You've heard this? Okay, all right. This is that structure because you have win, then you have quit, then you have quit, and then you have win. You've got A, A, B, B. It's this repetitive structure that helps you to 
Hear it, know it, remember it. And, and you see it here in this phrase, winners never quit, quitters never win. It's what's referred to sometimes as chiastic structure. You might hear it called mirroring or reverse parallelism. For the sake of all of us here, let's just call it ABBA. Okay, is that all right? Okay, cool. Let me show it to you in the Bible. Watch this. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. You still with me? Anybody hate me yet? About this. Something else we can talk about later. But Okay, okay. 624. Here we go. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Have you heard that passage before? Okay, keep it up there on the screens for a little bit. Let me, let me show you a little bit. He starts by talking about who you will serve. That's A, right? And then he talks about hate and love. And then, just to kind of mirror it and mix it up a little bit, he goes back to the ideas of love and hate. And then at the end, what does he talk about again? Who you will serve. So you have this structure again. Serve, hate, love. Love, hate, serve. A, B, B, A. You have that structure that helps you see it and understand it. Does that make sense? My hope is in sharing this with you is not that you'll get a little nap. My hope is that sometime when you're going through scripture, you're going to see this and go, oh, wait a minute. I see how this is structured here. That makes a little bit more sense to me. I see the, the chiastic structure or whatever you want to call it. You can see that there. Let me, let me show you one other example. We won't take the time to read it because we read it several times earlier this year. Romans chapter 8, you're probably familiar with this passage, where Paul says that, that what can separate me from the love of Christ. Do you remember that passage in Romans chapter 8? Let's just talk it through real quick because Paul starts by saying, he asks a question. He says, what can separate us from the love of Christ. And then he goes on and he does this whole list of things that he mentions right there. Then, you with me, he throws a little curveball and he puts in a C there and he says, we are, and do you remember this passage? He says, we are more than, anybody remember? Conquerors in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Then he goes back and lists something. He says, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, do you remember that part? And then he says, he ends it by saying, it cannot separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So you have this same kind of structure again. He just throws the C in here. Now watch this. Oftentimes when you get this, this middle part, kind of the very hinge of this whole structure, what you see here is the essential part of the whole thing. It, it's kind of the center of it. It's an important part. It shows emphasis what cannot separate us from the love of Christ? It's because we're more than conquerors. This is the important part because the passage flows into this and flows out of this. This is the central part of the whole thing. We are more than conquerors. Does that make sense? Okay, you're tracking with me here? Okay, now we're gonna look at Acts chapter two. So if the person next to you is sleeping, elbow them and tell them this is where it gets good. Okay, you ready? All right, here we go. Acts chapter two, a guy named Craig Keener. Is a theologian who has written this, this massive, monumental, four-volume work on the book of Acts. And it's a fascinating commentary. And in it, he unlocks this idea. He says, I, I see this chiastic structure that we looked at here in Acts chapter 2, verses 41 to 47, which is the passage we're talking about. So look at what he says here. Let's just read it together. Verse 41. Those who accepted Peter's message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. 
Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Here's our text for today. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. That's our passage. Let's look at it. In, in, the, in the framework of this structure we looked at, right? A, B, C, B, A. Luke begins talking about what happened through the evangelism and then the growth of the church. Do you remember that in verse 41 where he says that on that day there were 3,000 people added to the church? Are you, are you with me? You see that there? Both of you, thank you. Okay, and then you get to B and what you see happen next is Peter describes the fellowship, right? The breaking of bread, how they're all together, and the worship as they study the apostles' teaching that happens. Do you remember that part we just saw? Then he gets to our verses 44 and 45, and he gives us this picture of generosity. Then he goes back to talk more, and we'll look at this next week, about their fellowship and their worship, and then he wraps up again by talking about how their evangelism leads to the growth of the church because he says that people were being added to their number on a daily basis. Do you see the structure right there? Any, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and you are a teacher. Thank you. I appreciate that. So, so you, see the, you see the structure here that you have the evangelism and the growth, which leads the church to a place of fellowship and worship. As God's working in their life, it brings them to a place of generosity, and then out of that generosity, there's more fellowship and worship, which then leads to extensive growth in the church. Do you see the pattern here? If you look at this, what is central to this whole thing? Central to the life of the church is this idea of generosity, that as the Holy Spirit is working in the church, this spirit of generosity builds in them, and then it flows out of them to see even more good things happen in the church. When the church is willing to take their eyes off of themselves and look to the needs around them, it then, through their generosity, helps the church to continue to grow and prosper and lives are changed. Isn't that cool? He shows us here that the central part of this whole passage, right at the heart of it, is this idea of generosity. When the Holy Spirit works, that's what flows and moves in us. Understand this. The work of the Holy Spirit allows me to be generous, and my generosity creates a place for the Holy Spirit to work. The work of the Holy Spirit in my life then allows me to be generous, and then that generosity then creates a place for the Holy Spirit to continue to work. This is really important because for a lot of us, God's been doing certain things in our lives, and we can have spiritual experiences, but if they don't relate into then the practical part of how we live, then maybe our lives really haven't been changed. Remember what we looked at last week, that revival without revolution is just hype? At some point, there has to be a change that comes to our lives. The work of the Holy Spirit in my life causes me to take my eyes off of myself and to look to others. The work of the Holy Spirit in my life will cause me to take my eyes off of myself and look to others. It makes me generous. How's this generous uh, spirit reflected in our lives? Well, I can be generous and, and just view this in, in bold, uh, kind of broad strokes. I, I can be generous with my time, my talent, and my treasure. 
And kind of as we look at those three things, it's a little, little cheesy, but it helps us to remember this with my time, my talent, and my treasure. My most valuable resource is probably my time. And so that generosity allows me to be willing to share my time with others. My talent are the abilities and the skills and the gifts that God has given to me. And as that spirit of generosity works in me, then I'm willing to take those gifts and share them with others. Your, your treasure is, is the resource that you have. Let's just be honest, it's your cash. And that spirit of generosity is shown by what you do with the money that God has entrusted to you. But let's not let generosity stop there. So many times when we think of generosity, we go right to thinking about finances. I can also be generous with grace, acceptance, and forgiveness. Because I can hold on to things in my heart and, and, and have a, a fist wrapped around those things and not be willing to share them. But I can be generous with grace because sometimes... We do things where we need grace from one another. Amen? I can be generous with acceptance. One of the things you're going to see as we go through the book of Acts is how clearly it shows up that God has brought the gospel to people who are not like you. He has brought the gospel to all of us. And that generous spirit may cause us to show generosity to someone who's different from you in age, in gender, in race, in background, in status. And how about forgiveness? Man, that's something that I sometimes want to hold on to and not be willing to, to share with somebody else. But what if the generous way in which God has given to me his grace means that that's the way in which he wants me to give generously to others? Generosity is a whole lot more than just what's in your wallet. It's about what's in your heart. That's why Serve Week is, is so critically important to us because it allows us to take all these things, our time, our talent, our treasure. It allows us to take the resource we have, but also our willingness to, to interact with people who may be different from us, to reach out and to serve other people. And in doing that, we are at the very heart of what God created the church to be, and it allows the church to grow and more lives are changed. If you've not signed up yet to be a part of Serve Week, boy, hop online or, or stop by the hub today. Make sure you sign up. Even if you can just dedicate a couple of hours to come out and be a part of these projects, you will not regret that you do. In two weeks, we're going to take a, a special offering, not next week, but on the 23rd, to cover the expenses of the, of the Serve Week weekend. And I hope you'll pray and ask God, God, what would you have me to do as a part of this offering? How can I be generous? Because we see first that generous people are wise people. Here's the second thing. Number two, generous people know their source. Generous people know their source. Look at verse 44 again. Look, look at what uh, Luke writes. He says, all the believers were together and had everything in common. This, this is kind of a little bit of a tricky verse because over the years, people have misunderstood some of what it's saying here. But what's very clear is that the first church in Jerusalem realized that their possessions did not belong to them. They understood that the things that they had were really not theirs to hold on to. They understood that every part of their life belonged to Jesus. Not just the sins that they had, had asked him to forgive. Not just their heart that they had devoted to him. It hit them with everything that they have, that all that they had belonged to him. And it gave them this radical view of generosity. The work of the Holy Spirit in my life causes me to see my possessions for what they are. They're God's. The work of the Holy Spirit in my life causes me to see my possessions, to see the things that I have for what they truly are, they belong to God, which is easy to preach, but not so easy to practice. 
Because I think all of us probably would say, oh yeah, everything I have comes from God. But are you willing to entrust that to him? When it comes to your finances, when it comes to your time, when it comes to extending grace to someone else, we like to hold on to those things sometimes. What if God's asking you to be generous with those things and to give them and to recognize they're not really yours? Because understand this, if you're not willing to entrust that thing back to God and you're holding on tightly to it, then maybe it's taking the place of God in your life as first place. Does that make sense? Here's a question. Are my possessions God's or God's? Are my possessions God's? Do they belong to him or are they God's? Do I worship them? It's a really good question to ask. Do I recognize that the things that I have ultimately belong to him? And before we go any further with this concept, let's clear this up real quick because there's, a, there's an idea that, that I don't think is really biblical that shows up sometimes where it says that they had everything in common. And I've heard some people use that, that phrase, that idea that they had everything in common, to almost be a way to, to spiritualize an idea of socialism or communism. Anybody ever heard something like that? That, that you're supposed to take everything that you have, and then the believers all come together, and you sell what you have, and then you move it all into the same bank account, and you all move in and live together, and you share everything. You're just kind of one big happy family. And I don't mean to offend anybody, but that sounds terrible to me. Right? I'm wired for connection. I'm not wired for a commune. I'm not interested in communal living. And I'm pretty sure that after about five days, I'm going to have unchristian thoughts about you. I am confident of that. Like, I don't, I don't think that's what the Bible's talking about here. The model in Scripture is not for socialism or communism. It's for a spiritual idea of what the Bible says about our possessions. First of all, nowhere here does it say that they had to get rid of everything. In fact, if you read through, you'll find out that in the church, there were always people who owned homes because the churches met in the homes. They had resource that they could give. They were never forced to do anything with their stuff because both in, in, in chapter four and chapter five, when some of the believers sell some of their property to bless the church, it's almost like they always realize, hey, this is an extraordinary thing, not like they were forced to do it. And this church in Jerusalem, the very first church that we read about in scripture, is the only church that we see modeling this, and we'll see why here in a few moments, but in the book of Acts, in Paul's writings, you don't see this again. You only see this kind of language in chapter two and chapter four for good reason. This isn't some kind of model for what the church has to do. Instead, there's principles here we need to realize. The Bible calls us to practice biblical stewardship. When we recognize that what we have does not belong to us, that God is the source, the Bible calls us to practice biblical stewardship. And whenever you talk about stewardship, that then means that you're going to talk about money. And when you talk about money in church, it makes some people uncomfortable. In fact, some of you that may be newer to Calvary just said, oh, I knew it was coming. I knew at some point that boy was going to talk about money. He was, he was laying low for a while, but he's about to hit me with the right hook of financial need right here. I can see it coming. Look, we don't talk about money all the time because scripture doesn't talk about money all the time. But when we do talk about money, we're not afraid to talk about money because the Bible talks about money. In fact, it says it's a very important part of our lives and scripture speaks to us about that and it calls us to be a steward of what God has given to us. Psalm 24, verse one, look at this. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. David expresses this concept. He, he says, look, everything belongs to God. And because he says that, then, and then it affects his worldview. 
First Chronicles 29, they take this big offering for the, the temple that they're going to build. And here's what David says, First Chronicles 29, 14. He says, but who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. Everything we have comes to us from God. We are stewards of what God has entrusted to us. Get this, this is a critical principle. We are stewards of what God has entrusted to us. Let's say, let's say you've got a friend and they've got a really sweet ride. They've got this cool car and, and they know that you think it's cool. And you've got this big life event, something, something big that's coming up and they say to you, hey, would you like to borrow my car? What are you gonna say? Yeah, yeah, you got insurance? Yeah, yeah, I'll borrow the car. And when you're, when you're driving that car, not only do you feel good, you look good. Can I get an amen? But in the midst of this, are you going to have in the back of your mind the whole time that that car does not belong to you? I absolutely hope so. Because it's going to affect the way that you drive. It's going to affect the way that you treat that car. It's going to affect the way that you, you, you live in that space. Because you know that as great as it is that you have that, it doesn't really belong to you. It's somebody else's. They own it. You just get a chance to use it. So you're not going to abuse it. I hope you're not the kind of person that would abuse it. You're, you're not going to not take care of it. You're going to realize that ultimately that doesn't belong to you. You're going to give it back to them because it belongs to them. It's just a vehicle that you get to use. You're only a steward of that thing. Does that make sense? Your money is just a vehicle. And your time is just a vehicle. And the gifts that God has given to you, your abilities, your resources, your influence, your emotions, the grace that you have, that's just a vehicle that God has given to you so that through that, he can use that to bless you and to bless others. You're just a steward of that thing. It ultimately belongs to him. Does that make sense? That changes the way we view things. That's why sometimes in the church, you'll, you'll hear us use the word tithe. The tithe is a biblical concept that one-tenth of all that we have, one-tenth of all that God gives to us, we give back to him. It's the first thing that we do with our resources because we honor him and show that we realize that that ultimately belongs to him. Here, here's what the Bible says about the tithe. Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. It says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. Malachi chapter 3 tells us that, that one-tenth of what we have, we're to give back to God. We believe that's, that's through the local church. If you, if you go to the verses before this, it says that when you don't give back to God, you're, you're actually robbing God, and you set yourself up not for blessing, but for a curse. But when you choose to give to him, when you're obedient, when you follow biblical stewardship principles, then God is able to bring blessing into your life as a result of that. Have any of you ever seen that? Yes. And, and the tithe is kind of the most basic part of biblical stewardship. That's that first 10%. And then we also encourage people to, to pray about it and ask God what he would have them to give over and above that 10%. We, we sometimes call those offerings. If you, if you hear us talk about giving to missions or about giving to buy faith, which the, the buy faith funds are the, are the dollars that we're using to be able to renovate down on the other end of the building in the kids' area. Those renovations come through those by faith funds. You pray and you say, God, what would you have me to give? Here's an example, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. Remember this, Paul writes, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. 
Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. If if this whole giving thing is new to you or uncomfortable for you, I encourage you to spend a little bit of time in that passage in 2 Corinthians 9. Because it's very clear about how as God works in our lives and as we give, he can then bring blessing. Some of you are struggling in areas of your life, areas of your time, areas of your finances, areas of forgiveness, areas of opportunity. And maybe the reason that you've not been blessed in those areas is because you've you've been holding on too tightly to receive God's blessing. Do you know what I mean? And it's easy for us to kind of get some of these concepts mixed up. There's a little girl, she was on her way to church with her family, and her mom turned around, looked in the back seat, and handed her a dollar and a quarter. And said, honey, this is for the offering at church, and, and, and when it comes time to give, I want you to put one of these in the offering. Here's a dollar, here's the quarter. I want you to put one of them in the offering. So the little girl goes to kids' church, parents goes to church, they, they get back in the car, they're on their way home, and mom turns around and says to the little girl, well, honey, what did you do when it was time to give the offering? She said, well, mom, I sat there in church and I thought to myself, I sure love Jesus. I want to give this dollar to Jesus. Then the person up on the platform said that God loves a cheerful giver. And that helped me to realize I'd be more happy if I kept the dollar and gave the quarter to Jesus. So that's what I'll do. (laughs) That's not quite right, right? (laughs) She missed the point. Proverbs 3.10. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. Do you see what he's saying here? He's saying, look, there's cause and effect here. If you'll be willing to hold on loosely to the things that you have so that you're able to release those things so that God can use them, then you're in a place and a posture where you can receive the things that he wants to bring back to you in blessing. Jesus tells a story that kind of highlights the opposite of this. Look at this, Luke chapter 12, verse 16. And Jesus told him this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And and then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. Was the the problem that this dude wanted to build bigger barns? I don't think so. I actually think God's pleased when we have to build bigger barns because when we have what he's given to us and we use it wisely and he blesses us, we might have to build bigger barns. That might be a part of his blessing, right? The problem is not that this guy had more and had to build bigger barns. What's Jesus say is the problem? That he was storing up things for himself but was not rich towards God. When God moved in his heart, he wasn't generous. His problem wasn't his bank account. His problem was his heart. Peter Marshall served for years as the, as the chaplain of the United States Senate. He had a guy come up to him one time and said, Dr. Marshall, I have a real problem. He says, you know, for years I've tithed and I've given, but I've, I've kind of stopped doing it. Here's, here's my problem. He says, it used to be that I only made like $20,000 a year. And when I made $20,000 a year, for some reason, it really wasn't a big deal to part with 2,000 of it. I would do that, make 20, 
giveaway too. I didn't have a problem. He says, but now I make $500,000 a year. He says, that half a million means my tithe is 50,000. And I'm really having a hard time parting with 50,000. I'm having a hard time giving it away. And so I've, I've stopped tithing. Can you see what my problem is? What do I do? And instead of offering any solution to him, Dr. Marshall looked at him and he said, well, sir, you really, you do have a problem. I think we should probably pray about it. And the guy said, that's probably a good idea. He says, will you pray with me right now? And Dr. Marshall said, I'd, I'd, I'd like to. So Dr. Peter Marshall bowed his head, and then he prayed with boldness and authority, and here was his prayer. He said, dear Lord, this man has a problem, and I pray that you will help him. Lord, would you reduce his salary back to the place where he can afford to tithe? <laughs> Amen. Generous people are wise. Generous people know their source. Number three, last one. Generous people have the right priorities. Generous people have the right priorities. Go back to our passage, Acts chapter two, look at verse 45. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Did you see what happened here? They saw a need, they responded to it. If you have something in your hand that can be used by God to meet a need. Generosity says, how do, I, how do I give? Acts chapter 42 verse, or excuse me, Acts chapter four verse 32. It's where we'll be in a few weeks. Luke writes, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. In all the details there, here's the point. The love of God and the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives caused them to sacrificially give when there was a need to be met. It's important that you understand the context of this story. Why was it that the church in Jerusalem gave so radically? Why was their giving so extravagant? Well, if you remember, when was the church born? It was right after the day of, and remember after the Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost. And Pentecost was this big festival, this feast, where people came to Jerusalem. The population would swell because there would be thousands of people who would come to Jerusalem just for this festival from all over the world. We read this in Acts chapter 2, right? So then the Holy Spirit's poured out. People are saved. There's at least 3,000 people we know who right away become followers of Christ it's bound to be that some of those people were not from Jerusalem. Then you have more people being added to their number daily, and these people whose lives have been changed are there just visiting, but they say, my life has been changed. I want to be a part of this. I need to find a church. How many churches were there? <laughs> one. There was only one church. So they, they weren't in a hurry to take off. They were trying to figure out what their new faith meant. So they were staying in Jerusalem, but they didn't have jobs. They didn't have money. They didn't have resources. They needed places to stay. They need people who would help to take care of them. They had to figure out what they were doing. And if it wasn't for the church, these people would be left out in the cold. Now do you understand their generosity? Like this was critical. They saw a need and they met it. And then what happened to the church? Persecution happens. We'll see this when we get to chapter four. The people begin to persecute the believers. That means they're going to be isolated from their families. That means some of them may lose their jobs. They may lose their income. And so now it's critical that in the midst of this time, people needed to show generosity so the church would thrive and survive. Know this, people are more important than possessions. If our priorities are going to be in the right place, then at some point we have to recognize that people are more important than possessions. 
And look at how the Holy Spirit works. The work of the Holy Spirit in my life causes me to do what I can to meet the needs of others. The work of the Holy Spirit in my life causes me to do what I can to meet the needs of others. So that means when someone is is asking for some of your time, and it's the right thing to do, you choose to be generous to give that. Those moments when your family's pulling on you, there's other things that you'd rather do, the generosity of your time could literally make all the difference in someone's life. When you wrestle with some of these biblical principles of financial stewardship, and you wonder about giving to, to a church or giving to a ministry, Realize that as you do this, you're, you're being used by God. There may be someone who has a need and you can help to meet it because you have the ability or you have the wisdom or maybe you just have the energy. God might use you to do this, to reach out in practical and tangible ways to meet the needs of others. That's generosity. But get this, what, what generosity is not, and I, and I love it that the Bible says this, the Bible does not say that generosity means a free pass. The Bible shuts down freeloaders. That's a good thing, isn't it? Unless, like, unless you're a freeloader. Listen to this, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. This is, this is, this is cold. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. How do you like that? We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They're not busy. They're busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ, I love this, to settle down and earn the food they eat. The Bible never says that generosity is a free pass. It says that generosity and responsibility go hand in hand and that God has put things in our hands and that we can use them to bless him and bless his people We just have to choose if we're going to obey and do that because there's all kinds of, there's all kinds of ways around it. I don't know if you saw the story in the news last month about a a college-age girl, I think she was in her early 20s, who was a student at a university in Wyoming, and she was arrested as she was walking out of a Walmart because she had her shopping cart and she just moved right past all the checkout lanes and was just walking right out of the store with her shopping cart and inside of it were three big screen TVs, $1,900 worth of televisions. And they stopped her and said, hey, you, you, you can't go out with these. You know, that's shoplifting. You're under arrest. Here's what she said. Oh, I'm doing a research paper on kleptomania. <laughs> that was her response. That was her rationale. I'm stealing these as, as part of my research to, to do a study on what it means to be a kleptomaniac. You know what that means, right? Somebody that just, just steals stuff. So they went to her apartment and searched it and found thousands of dollars worth of stolen goods. She wasn't researching an issue. She had an issue. And she was trying to excuse it, trying to come up with this way to rationalize it away. Say, well, I'm doing research on this, but yet she was having all these things that were not hers. We might not use kleptomania, but we find ways to justify holding on to things that really don't belong to us. They belong to God. And there's moments when God says to us, will you release what you have so I can use it to bless others and ultimately to bless you? Are we willing to to release our hands and be used by God. You'll see this all throughout Scripture, especially in Luke's writings. We're going to see this idea as we go through the book of Acts. You see it when you go to the gospel of Luke. Luke's the only one who, who recounts the story that Jesus told of the Good Samaritan. Do you remember that one? How the least likely person 
helps the guy who's in need and uses his own resources to bless someone else. Now look, you, you can't meet every need. You can't help everybody. But there is somewhere, there is something, there is someone that God has or he will put on your heart and ask you to be obedient and be generous and do the thing that he's led you to do. And, and let me tell you this, this is, this is just a truth. In the times when God asks me to be generous, I don't always feel like being generous. Anybody else? Sometimes I just have to choose to be obedient, to choose to allow the Holy Spirit to work generously through me. And here's the good news, that when I do, that's when that that good feeling of generosity comes. Sometimes I got to be obedient and take the first step and recognize that people are more important than possessions that God wants to work through us, use us. One last scripture from Luke. Look at this. Luke chapter 6, verse 38. Jesus says, Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. I've heard, I've heard that verse really my whole life and, and probably could even quote it, but don't know that I really fully understood what it meant. Because it's a first century agricultural image that we don't fully understand in the 21st century. So let me show you what he's talking about here. If you had to go and get, get grain or wheat or whatever, you would want to go to someone who would be a generous supplier. Because you would go with your sack or you would go with your basket. And you would probably, if you, if you had a robe, you would probably kind of hold it, hold your robe out and kind of hold the basket in that. And you would go with someone and you'd ask them, would you fill this up? And what they would do is they, they might fill it up to the place where it looks full. But we've already talked about this. We know that when something looks full, it doesn't mean it's full, right? You ever bought a box of cereal? It's not full. It's full of air. It's full of plastic and three cornflakes. That's like all you get, right? I don't want that kind of seller. You'd want to go to a generous seller because if you went to a generous seller, here's what they do. You'd have your basket and then once they filled it up, they would press it down and then they'd shake it. Because you know, you shake it, it's going to make some more room. And then you know what's going to be? There's going to be room on the top now that wasn't there, right? And then they're going to fill it up more, and they're going to fill it up till it overflows. And that's why you're holding up like the lap of your robe so you can catch what overflows. That's the kind of seller I want to go to. How about you? Now it makes more sense when Jesus says, give and it will be given to you, pressed down, shaken together, running over. That's the picture. You want to be someone who's generous because you want to receive something that's generous. That's why he says, because with the measure that you use to give to others, that's the measure that's going to come back to you. Uh Uh-oh. Because if I've not been generous, then how can I expect God to be generous back to me? Maybe sometimes I wonder why it feels like God's been kind of stingy with me. Maybe it's because I've been stingy with others. We serve a generous God, but when I refuse to be generous, I put a barrier on his generosity because he's going to give back to me the same way I've given to others. The reason we talk about this isn't because we want more of your money, your time, your energy, your forgiveness. It's because I want you to be blessed. And he says that if you're holding on to your things, your time or your forgiveness or your cash with clenched fists and white knuckles, you can't be in a place to receive what he wants to give. But if you'll hold on to that tightly, then I know a pretty generous supplier 
who wants to pour out his blessing into your life. This is why generosity is at the very key, the center of all that we've talked about. And he wants to give it to you with a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, and bring his blessing into your life. That's what I want. How about you? Then it's probably time for me to let go. Let go a little bit of that, that, that money I've held on to. And when I open up, then I can receive. It's probably time for me to quit being such a stingy person with my time, being willing to use the, the gifts that I have to bless someone else. Maybe it's time for me to stop seeing people with the stereotypes that I've always held and be more generous towards others. Maybe that, that old happening that I've held on to, maybe it's time for me to be generous with my forgiveness because the Bible says that's the only way I'm going to get that forgiveness back. The way you give is the way you're going to be given to. And that's why generosity is so critically important. So I'm going to ask you just to bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment, if you would, please. And my prayer is that in the last few moments, the Holy Spirit has held up a mirror to your life and, and just kind of highlighted for you, wh where is this in your spirit? Maybe for you, the first thing that you need is to understand that God so loved the world that he gave and that he gave his son Jesus so that we could have forgiveness, so that we could have direction, so that we could have life. And maybe what you need more than anything else is to make a commitment today for Jesus to be your Lord and your Savior. The Bible says that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you need that in this moment, I'm going to pray in just a moment. Would you be willing to say, Jesus, I need you to change my life? For others of us, the, the Spirit's been talking to us about our resource, about our time, about our ability, about our influence, about our emotion, about our relationships. And the Spirit's calling you to be wise, calling you to see Him as your source, and to realize that meeting a need may be the most important thing that's in front of you right now. In a new opportunity, in restoring a relationship, that God is calling you to have a spirit of generosity. Lord, thanks that your word shows us that the very center of who you are, the very center of the Christian life is this idea of generosity. Lord, would you help us to open up our hands that, that, our, that our closed white-knuckled fists would hold on loosely to what we have, so that we can release those things to you, knowing that you'll use those as, as vehicles to bless others and that we'll be open to receive your blessing as well. God, we thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, as we go through our, our days, would you allow your word to resonate and change and shape and mold us? God, as we go from here, we ask that you would go with us. Father, would you send us out with your special favor, with your wonderful peace? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.